And I'd like to offer some reflections on one of the teachings the Buddha gave. And I realized as I was contemplating it this morning and yesterday afternoon a little, that I've, I don't think in 30 years of teaching I've ever actually spoken about this topic as such. I thought, gosh, that's kind of nice to have something new. And of course, it may not be new to everyone, um, but for myself, I realized that in the situation of both beginning practice and continuing practice, one of the things that it's useful to look at is what is it that we're actually grappling with? And one of the ways the Buddha articulated that, what is it that we're grappling with in practice? He articulated it as what are called the ten fetters. And uh, fetter is an interesting word that essentially means something which binds us. And I remember the the first book, Dharma book, that I ever bought and read was a book by Nyanaponika Tara, a German Sri Lankan Buddhist monk who lived in the 20th century. And in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, one of the opening lines which stays with me after years and decades since I first read it, he said, this heart-mind is bound all over. And we might recognize that. This heart-mind is bound all over. And yet can know freedom here and now. And so the teachings here point to the experience and the recognition of being bound, of, we could say, being fettered. And a fetter tends to bind one to something. So one is limited in one's ability to move. Either by being fettered to a post or having one's legs fettered together so you cannot actually walk. It's the way we use this. And a more perhaps familiar topic and one that I and others certainly have spoken about many times in this hall is what we talk about as the, the challenges, the hindrances. Those elements in practice which both as we begin a retreat and as our practice deepens arise for us. And there's some overlap here, so I'm just naming them. And what I, I want to distinguish is the challenges which we know is uh, sort of in a sen essentially craving and aversion as restlessness and sloth or sleepiness and as doubt, these act as a, a boundary or a barrier or a limitation for the ability of the mind to quieten. So they're called hindrances because they hinder the mind's ability to quieten, to settle, to deepen and calm. But they're not actually hindrances to practice. That's why I call them, I translate the the word, I think, from my view, of course, I would think this is more useful, is as challenges. Because within these experiences, they, there was always the possibility of opening our heart to what is difficult here and of deepening insight into the way our mind 
and our heart are caught in patterns. And so they do not by themselves hinder our practice in absolute terms. And challenges, hindrances, are things we may encounter at the beginning of a retreat. Not unusual. And equally as practice deepens, the very deepening and the opening that takes place in the heart-mind seems in a rather mysterious and sometimes ironic way to invite further and deeper levels and layers of these particular energies and forces to arise into the mind. And I think it's just important to know that. It's not just something that happens at the beginning. And the presence of them is not somehow evidence that our practice is all going to pot. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. And so I just wanted to name these because you'll be familiar with them, I imagine, but the, the, the challenges, the hindrances. But what I, as I said, wish to speak about is the ten fetters. And the sense of what it is to be bound by something that limits our ability to move, to move freely or to move from where we are. And these are described as the, the five lower and the five higher fetters, which has a certain significance in, in what they're related to. But the f so the first five, the, the primary fetter, the, the, the mental factor that binds us here is the tendency to identify as self, to identify with what we call the skandhas, the, the basic foundation elements or aggregates of experience and existence that are known as form or described as form, the, the contact with sensory experience, feeling the quality of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral that goes with that perception, the way we organize, make images and meaning out of this. And formations or sankara, the... Uh, the constructions, the formations, the, in a way, the building up of something that becomes either a pattern or a framework within the heart-mind. And consciousness itself, the faculty that knows these experiences. The tendency to take these as me and as mine, to say, I am this, or equally, I am not this in some forms, equally binds us to a certain view of what we are and what we're not. That in practice we are invited to notice. Do I define myself by the experience that's arising? Do I take this to be me? To be somehow definitive of who and what I am? And of course it's important to understand that this reflection and contemplation doesn't mean somehow pretending these things have got nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with me, all that reactivity. No, no, it's not self. We actually nonetheless have to be responsible for what arises, to practice with it. But to understand it doesn't define us is to understand these elements of experience or these aggregates of experience, these sort of five heaps is the literal translation of the way the Buddha spoke about them, 
interact together to create the sense of a solid, separate, independent and fixed, unchanging, permanent self. But there is, as we know from the teachings, there is no such permanent, fixed, unchanging and separate, unaffected, independent, self-existent entity to be found. What is found is something which is changing, is fluid, and which is connected in relationship to, dependent upon, affected by, and affecting everything around us. And this stands at the top of the list. And so this is something we see in the Buddha's teachings and our practice to contemplate, to turn our attention towards. And in the context of coming on retreat, views about our practice arise. And very often we take what arises in our practice as somehow definitive of ourself. Whether it be the, the challenges and struggles of the first days of one's body aching, one's mind busy or exhausted or both, and everything else. Whether we take that to be ourselves, if we do, if we bind ourselves to this, we are limited by this. And equally in the quiet, deep, open spaces and territories and landscapes we may at times explore after extended periods of practice, or maybe sometimes at the beginning too. But if we take these to be self, if we define ourselves in relationship to these too, we are bound, we are limited, we are fettered. And the second of, the, of these limiting factors, these fetters, is doubt, sceptical doubt and uncertainty. Which in a sense is what arises with that sense, oh, this doesn't work, it's no good, or I can't do it, I'm no good. And there's this way in which in order to release our heart, and our mind. We need to have some trust that that is possible for ourselves. And the quality that's kind of the, the counterpoint to the sada, faith, or the capacity to rest one's heart upon something is important to contemplate here. At some level, of course, there will be uncertainty and perhaps even doubt arising around what we do not yet know from our own direct experience. And then perhaps we're reliant a little on trusting in both the words and also the conduct of those wise beings who we respect and who speak from their own experience of what, what, what we might ourselves not yet know from the Buddha on down through the, the wise women and the wise men and the wise people of all genders who have shared and have practiced and have articulated these teachings in this path through millennia. But to notice what happens when we, when we conceive in terms of I can't do it or it's no good, it doesn't work. 
And in a sense what that's saying is that where I am is where I'm going to stay. And yet the teachings and our experience I think shows to us that in fact wherever we are in our experience, although important to turn towards this, it is not somewhere where we will stay forever because this is not the nature of experience or what it means to be a human being. We move on. Life moves on. And what is possible for us is something that to me it seems in the depth of our hearts we already know but don't perhaps yet know that we know. Because whatever it is that moves us to come on a retreat such as this or to stay here after we've been here a while through all of what that involves speaks of something that we might not always be in touch with but nonetheless it seems to me is there in each of us. Again, these, these two, both uh, self-identity views and doubt are commonly spoken about in teachings, reflected on by practitioners. One that's perhaps less frequently spoken about that I find very interesting is what the Buddha spoke of as the grasping at rules and rituals, at rites and practices and forms. And at the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of religious observance that was kind of framed in terms of if you do this, then your spiritual development will be assured. If you do that, then certain consequences will inevitably flow. And I think a lot of Westerners, a lot of people from a, a modern sort of error sensibility tend to look at all that with a sense of nah we're not really into sort of rites and rituals I'm not particularly attached to those sort of things I don't do a lot of lighting of candles and bowing and making that sort of stuff that and there might be some of us here that for whom that's actually something we have a connection with and actually certainly I do pops perhaps I have an attachment we'll, we'll see but um, what, what's interesting is that the tendency of the mind to create what fulfills that particular attachment, that particular um, grasping that becomes a fetter, is prevalent. In fact, it's pretty much there in, well, having not talked to everyone, I can't say this for sure, but it seems to me that we all have this. And the way it tends to show is the way we get attached to our forms. Now, have you ever noticed a response when you're walking really slowly and mindfully and sensitive and someone comes wandering past a bit like they don't really know where they are or what's going on here and so clunk 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 clatter 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 in the tea tray bang 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 sit down have you ever noticed a response to that because I have when on a retreat and what I discern it out of, as upon reflection is oh there's some attachment to the idea of how we should do things here and of course it's right to be respectful and sensitive to the frame and the context but it easily becomes a sense that if we do it this way then the deepening the ripening the fruition of our practice is assured and if we don't do it this way if we do it some other way obviously the wrong way the other way the way they do it over there 
then our practice will not be successful. And it easily leads to a sense of a kind of a rejection or even a contempt for other forms, other practices that we don't know. And if we notice this in ourselves, oh, those people, they only sit for 30 minutes. We sit for 45 here at Guy House. And somewhere else they sit for an hour. Notice if any of that is something you encounter in yourself. It's not to judge these things, but to see they're deep in us. And this is one of comes into also one of the Buddha's teachings on the four great attachments. This one, the attachment to rites and rituals. Thinking there's a right way to do it. Now, I'm hardly in this space with you, but when I'm teaching a group retreat, over the years I've noticed again and again, without saying anything about it, if I always sit with my hands on my knees, it doesn't take long before more and more people are putting their hands on their knees. If I sit with my hands gathered at my belly, it doesn't take long before more and more people start to gather their hands at their belly. Sometimes I talk about it. Because what we start to do is think, oh, that's the right way to do it. I better do that. Then I'll get enlightened. And we're not going to have such a gross thought as that. But it's amazing how it is that that plays. And so I mostly alternate between where I put my hands. And sometimes I talk about this. Because we do this as human beings. We get attached to forms that we think are the right thing that if I do it like this and what's significant here is that forms have a place and a power and a value it's not like our practice will ripen by abandoning these things which is different than being attached to them it's like to engage in without attachment and say oh these are, are of value they're useful there's a value in having one's hands out here find it's helpful if my back is tired sometimes. just gives a little more support. I find it's useful to bring my hands into the belly. Just at a postural level, it opens my shoulders more if they're tightening. There's other values too. But where we go beyond seeing the value to starting to put an absolute value upon forms, that's where this particular feta is playing out. And the next of the fetters is sensual desire. Sense of wanting to have nice experiences. Pleasurable, desirable, enjoyable, lovely, beautiful. And of course there is a place for these. They're so important and easily the teachings I think can get a little distorted in a apparent rejection of what touches us, what uplifts our heart, which may bring a sense of beauty, delight or preciousness that we sense and directly apprehend. That's different than a urge to kind of accumulate, to maintain and to sort of continue to have pleasant experiences. Out of the idea, and often this is the underlying element in it, that somehow if I get this, this will give me fulfillment, happiness, completion. 
That's what comes with that. If I get some more of this, if I can just keep this experience, if I can have this experience again, then things will be just good ongoingly. Again, this is something we talk about a lot. You'll be familiar with this, I imagine. And the the fatter next listed ill will, which again we know well as an expression of aversion, but where it comes in the particular sense of either anger towards or a sense of not caring for or caring about another or something having an intention of harmfulness towards others is something that binds us. And we, we talk about this in working with, with anger as a particular expression of, of ill will, sorry, as a particular expression of aversion, where one finds one's mind, one's heart, and when we identify it, we find our self-sense engaged in wishing harm to or unhappiness for or the loss of good things from someone else or some other group and this is something that again is profoundly and deeply entangling and I think we know it as deeply painful which is why it's sometimes more an obvious oh yeah I'd really like to let go of all that to not be bound by this. And both ill will and sensual desire are, in a sense, expressions of something primary as biological evolutionary mechanisms that are designed initially to help us find food and warmth and be able to form community and and reproduce, and equally to avoid dying of cold or hunger or being eaten or abandoned. So these, they have that sort of very deep and not in itself problematic root, but when it comes up into the consciousness, into the heart-mind, through the frame of self, of the sense of me, separate from what is out there, then they're distorted. They become distorted into something which binds us, which binds the heart and mind. Either into the sense of there is that out there which I must get or keep or have and to do so then will provide fulfillment or there is that which I must get rid of and stop arising. Stop from arising. And that we then feel angry towards others or towards ourselves if such things come. And the degree to which, as again, we can come from a range of different heritages here. And uh, you know, I have heritage from Asia and from different parts of Europe. And yet I've grown up in a completely westernized, modern society that it's really clear that the tendency towards ill will towards oneself is one of the deepest most prevalent most destructive and tragic things that we as a culture have developed it would seem certainly subjected ourselves 
too. And so this is something else to see how we become bound by this, to notice this. These five self-view or the sense of identity found in the contents of experience, of what we can experience as form, feeling, perception, formations and constructions and as consciousness. The sense of doubt, uncertainty. Not trusting in the, the Dharma and in one's own capacity to realize it. The belief and the grasping at forms, practices, rites and rituals that somehow these by themselves will do it for me. If I just do it like this. Sensual desire and ill will. These are called the lower fetters. And it's just really interesting to notice if they show up in your practice or if they don't. In terms of the Buddha's teaching of awakening, the frame of the journey is articulated in terms of the releasing of the heart-mind from these, these ten. And initially in terms of the first, you could say, level or dimension of awakening that the Buddha spoke of, in which the first three fall away through an understanding of, of Dhamma that makes it very clear through encountering the heart of what we practice to understand that the sense of self as a separate, fixed, unchanging and independent entity is, is unsustainable and falls away. The doubt about what's possible for a human being and for this human being, the possibility of awakening, at a certain point in the journey it becomes clear this is possible without any doubt because one has through one's own experience made contact with been touched by we could say come to realize this and the idea that doing certain things could bring it for us or not doing certain things by itself would do it for us this equally becomes seen as empty and impossible to sustain as a position Sensual desire and ill will are understood to become weakened in the second level or realm of deepening of realization that the Buddha spoke of and completely gone in the third. And when I talk about these things, for some of us this might seem a bit strange. Why do we talk about these things? They may seem a long way from our experience. They may or may not be so far away. One of the curious things about practice is we don't actually know how far we are from where we could be. And as I think I said in a talk earlier on this retreat, but I might not have because I 
gave a bunch of talks a few days before that here, and I don't always remember what I said when. But whether or not I said it already, um, it's always interesting to me that the Buddha, in his very experience under the Bodhi tree, on the night of his awakening, assailed by Mara, we could say, and maybe so, but equally assailed by doubt, by uncertainty, and by the forces of craving and fear. And it's like, huh, looking at that one could think one was a long way away. And yet he was right there. And so this path is one that is taught and understood in terms of realization, of awakening, of the releasing of the human heart and mind from the bondage of these fetters. And then just to speak about the what I call the five higher fetters. More subtle, we could say. And the first is the craving for form, for existence. Sense of wanting to be. And then with that, the next is the craving for the formless, for non-material existence or the craving to not be and these two correspond quite closely although they're a little different but with what's understood as uh, and talked about as craving for existence and non-existence and the one in the context of the of the, the ten fetters the desire for experience that is formless or experience that has form is slightly different. It's, it's orienting towards the experience. And it's particularly and specifically relevant in relationship also to the development of meditative absorptions, which as a path is something that for some people can be really useful and helpful, and that for some people is not particularly so. And that the, the Buddha's teaching was very clear that the path to awakening can run through the realm of absorption and equally run fully without going there. And so if we're drawn in this direction, that's wonderful. And if we're not, that's equally wonderful. Because the path has different ways within it, currents within it. And in relationship to the path of absorption, the craving for fine material experience is also related to the first four absorptions. It's talked about as rupa raga sort of craving or lust for form. And can also at times be seen to arise in relationship to the experience within the absorption realms, 
of form and craving for the formless, for non-material experience. It can be seen to arise in relationship to the arupa jhanas, the formless realms. And so, while they are both powerful and beautiful, and as I said, for those who are drawn to this, can be incredibly beneficial, they also are places where many, many meditators over the decades and centuries and millennia have spent quite some time disentangling themselves from the very easy compulsion to get caught in these particular forms of craving. And in context of regular retreats, I think probably, unless they're on that topic, we don't necessarily talk about these things so much. To say that there are challenges or risks or dangers is not to say this is not a good idea. And I hope that's clear. But to really pay attention, to look and see, it requires some real maturity and depth of practice to handle the forces that arise in the mind in relationship to the deeply pleasurable elements of absorption practice. And the depth of realization of opening and transformation that is available to our hearts and minds as human beings is not dependent upon passing through that territory. So the next of the higher fetters is conceit. And it's interesting how we tend to think of conceit as thinking, I'm better than. That's not actually what the Buddha was speaking about. The conceit that the Buddha spoke of is expressed as, I am better than, or I am worse than, or I'm equal to. And it's interesting for us because it doesn't sound like conceit to the way we think about it to say I'm less than. It certainly doesn't sound like it to say I'm equal to, maybe a little. But the conceit is not actually in the, the last word of the phrase. It's in the first two. It's the I am. And then as soon as I am arises, it has to fight. It only arises in a comparative relationship. It can't do that otherwise. Because it's, it's the conceit I am as a separating. And therefore it must separate itself and make a judgment about what it separates from. To be better than, worse than or equal to. It always appears this way. And so we notice this here. Do we make my practice better than? and therefore myself better than? 
Do I make my practice worse than and therefore myself worse than others? Or do we make ourselves and our practice equal to? Whenever we get involved with measuring our practice, it's really useful to look and see if we're comparing, positioning and locating ourselves in relationship to something that's been or someone that's perceived as other. Because to do so is to be caught in the fetter of conceit. And the next of the, the ten fetters is restlessness. And we think, yeah, that's a pretty well-known one, isn't it? Bodily restlessness, mental restlessness comes within the, the five challenges or hindrances that I spoke of briefly at the beginning this morning. And that sense of somehow looking for something else, something other, something more or different than what's right here. To be, to do, to gain, to become. That's the movement that's experienced as restlessness, an inability to come to rest, quite literally, as a translation. And so again, we can notice where that sense of somehow imagining that where we are and what we are and who we are is not sufficient or okay. That we have to get somewhere else or do something else or gain something else by way of experience in order to become someone else other and who and what we already are. And of course there's a lot of room for development and transformation and practice and working with the very patterns and structures of our psychology, both our personal and our shared and collective patternings. And it's important and wholesome and good practice that we work with these things. And it's really important to understand that in the journey of awakening there is also that dimension to be understood, to be known, to be realized in which there is nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be other than what is already here. And the last of the fetters, the last of the higher fetters is ignorance. Avidya. Ignorance is a little bit pejorative. And that's possibly intentional. But it's the non-comprehending of the Dharma. 
non-comprehending of the fundamental truth of existence. The non-comprehending, not seeing. And I, I find with this it's useful to just acknowledge that until we see this, of course, we can't see it. Until we know this. And we don't come in as awakened beings. So the use of ignorance as slightly pejorative is somewhat unhelpful. And I sometimes find it useful to translate this also as innocence. Innocence is the condition of not knowing or not comprehending that doesn't make the mistake of thinking that it does. Because that's how we get into trouble. When we recognize that at some level what is most fundamental has not yet been fully seen or penetrated by this heart and mind. Then there's a kind of a quality more akin, I would say, to innocence of curiosity, of interest, of knowing. I sort of know this, but I don't yet know it fully. That has a humility in it. As a counterpoint to ignorance, which doesn't know, but thinks it knows. And then it gets into a lot of trouble. And humility is not generally one of its qualities. And this, this understanding, this realization we speak of. We can talk of it in terms of the realization not just the cognitive or intellectual conceptual understanding, but the realization of emptiness. The wisdom that sees the interdependent, fluid, changing nature of what arises. And in seeing that, this wisdom is experienced as freedom is the release of bondage, the release from the fetters. And it's equally realized in the seeing of, of non-separateness that expresses itself as compassion and engages in service. And these two together, wisdom and compassion, Realizing both emptiness and in the other way of orienting towards it, non-separateness, freedom and service, contributing, offering one's life. This is the basis of, of the deepest peace and most profound happiness we can know as human beings. And it's this that's spoken of as the, the release of the heart, the sure heart's release. And it's for this the Buddha said that it is worthy of us as human beings to enter into this path and to make it our priority. As he said often then to young people of good standing, abandoning the homeless life, going forth and 
sorry, abandoning the home life and going forth in homelessness. This is what one would do this for. And here it's, even though we are away from home for a little while, we might not be entirely homeless at the moment. But nonetheless, the, the, the willingness to let go of where we have known familiarity and comfort and security. And to come in to this field of practice. To give oneself wholeheartedly to this. I remember being struck when reading many, many years ago now in the so it was the first time seeing the phrase where it was described, Oh restlessness is the fetter that persists right up until the end and just before the final dissolution of Avidya. Now I'm taking this from what I've read. It's like okay, that makes some sense. Until the full flowering of realization, beyond just initial awakening, there's nonetheless the sense of somehow leaning towards. Because something in us, of course, realizes there is still more to discover. And just separating out that which is a leaning towards in a, in a way that disconnects from where we are to separating that out from the, the natural sense of being called to rather than towards. Towards, we tend to lean, but I'm called to something without locating it somewhere else. What that might be for us as human beings to give ourselves to. So please continue in your practice. In its first day of retreat or its day at whichever point you may be. And to remember Perhaps to allow your heart to rest in the possibility spoken and affirmed by so many who have gone before us and equally in this living generation. The possibility of awakening. The sure heart's release. This is possible available for each and every human being who is interested 
in this. As Rumi says, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. May our practice here be for our own deep well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that is and all that lives. So thank you for your practice. Please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.